Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you have graciously granted to us in Christ our Lord to commune together, to lift up our voices and worship in unison to the one who so deserves it, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for the redeemed, whose body and blood is represented in this meal before us and who we look to as the author and finisher of our faith and whose word we turn to now, Lord, as we open up the Holy Scriptures. I pray, Father, that you would draw us close unto yourself as we study your Bible today, the Word of God preserved for us from ages past, but as true and relevant now as the day that it was written. After all, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your Word endures forever. We thank you for connecting us with the eternal through the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the gift of eternal life, the purchase price of His blood paid for our sins and secured our future. And for this, we are so thankful and we give you praise and glory. I pray now that you would uh, cause our minds to bow before the authority of your truth, that we would submit to your word as proclaimed, and that areas of sin and shortcomings in our own lives, yet unsanctified areas of thinking and action, would be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we study your scriptures We pray that through the proclamation of your gospel, through this morning's message and the equipping of your saints who will then proclaim following this service that you would draw the lost unto salvation, that the active ingredient that your spirit is ordinarily using your word would go forth drawing the lost unto repentance. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of joining in the assembly of the ages as we worship you this day. The saints that have gone before and ones yet to come into the kingdom will one day join and the greatest of all worship services. Lord, may we look forward with faith and expectation even as we gather here today. Open up our minds that we might understand you more. To the praise of your great name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God for the opportunity to share in his scriptures today, to worship together, and to behold our God in his holy word. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 1 this morning. And let us consider this gospel or this uh, epistle from the great apostle Paul. And this will be the first in a series on our first Sunday of the month, our communion Sunday messages, where we will go through, Lord willing, the book of Galatians, beginning in chapter 1, today, verses 1 through 9. The title of this morning's message is Hills to Die On. Hills to Die On, of course, the phrase taken from a colloquialism, a common figure of speech in our day, what, what is so important that you would die for it? That's a question that people answer in different ways. But the Christian is taught to answer that question according to what Scripture says. There are some things that are so important that we ought not to let them go. We ought not to change our minds, even at the point of death. We read recently of the Ethiopian who was converted to Christ in Acts chapter 8. But his story was preceded by one Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was a deacon, and he followed the Lord all the way to the point of death. Stephen understood from the scriptures what is a hill to die on. Paul understood this as well. He would one day give his life as a martyr. But in the meantime, he instructed the church, there are certain things that are non-negotiable. Paul would die on the hill of the gospel, and so he did. And this morning, he explains this to us, and he explains it by way of instruction to a wayward church, a wayward church who was capitulating on non-negotiables, a church who was compromising on the essentials. 
The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to equip us, His church today, to discern and reject different quote-unquote gospels. The scriptures teach us to discern and to reject different gospels, or you could say different messages, or different claims to good news, different claims to the nature and character of God and salvation. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word today as we behold his scriptures before us? Again, I will be reading Galatians 1, 1 through 9. Listen to God's holy word this day. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In the providence of God, in his sovereign decree, there was a group of false teachers that had risen up in this region, the Galatian region. Thus, the interaction of these false teachers with the young believers in this area provided a test case for the church. This test case served to show what elements of the gospel were non-negotiable. When people began to push back against the preaching of the apostles, where they said this, where they drew the line and said, this is a hill to die on, those moments become illustrative for us. In God's providence, it helps us to discern what are the things that we must not ever capitulate on. We must not ever compromise on. We must not ever submit to the whims of culture, changing doctrine, fresh ideas of whatever people are interested in at the moment to change, to alter, to modify, to twist, to turn, to adjust, to accommodate our preferences. There are hills to die on, and Paul identifies them even in our text today. Now, this is interesting. Given the context, the modern day, uh, 2,000 years ago, given the first century lay of the land culturally, and the dynamic of the Jewish to Christian trajectory of the church, it is easy to see <coughs> how the teachings of the Galatian imposter apostles, these false teachers, would uh, perhaps seem attractive to many of these new Christians. They might well, these men who were bringing this false gospel, as Paul called it, but it, you know, it wasn't, uh, on the surface, it wasn't dramatically different. They just changed one or two little things. They said, in addition uh, to faith, you must also be circumcised. You have to become a Jew, and then you can become a Christian, believe in Jesus, all the rest, kind of fill in the blanks later. But it's necessary, it's essential, that we add at least this one work 
uh, to your salvation. That work being the Jewish a command or the commandment from the Old Testament to be circumcised. So this was the issue at hand. So this might have seemed like an attractive proposition, and it might well have been. Perhaps these guys could have been, you know, labeled as a reasonable partial legalist, bridging the unnecessary separation between the traditional Jews and this new wave of Jesus followers. And in other words, the logic kind of went like this. Christ has preached the gospel, and his apostles are echoing it. That is extremely different. It's a radical change from what our understanding has been. Oh, how about... Uh, Let's look for ways to kind of bridge that gap, to make the gospel an easier sell, especially to those who want to retain some of their Jewish traditions, preferences, and culture. Now, without using the Bible as a standard for what should be retained and what was not of God's word anyway, after all, Christ himself said that you make void the word of God by your traditions, these parties were arbitrarily picking and choosing things that they preferred. They were like... Uh, Consumers going to a buffet at an all-you-can-eat restaurant called Religious, called Religion, the Religion Restaurant. They walk in and they see the buffet and they say, oh, here's a little bit of rabbinic Judaism. I'll take a bit of that and put it on my plate. Here's some teachings of Christ. I like what he said in most things. I'm going to put a little bit of that on my plate. And you can see how this kind of customization of your religious identity uh, puts you in the driver's seat and makes you sovereign and puts you in charge ultimately it's idolatry. And thus, no iota of customization of our religion uh, is allowed if we are truly serving and submitting to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so this is the issue at hand. However, there were many, quote unquote, good reasons to think otherwise at the time. Now, against these alterations, Paul, the apostle, makes it unavoidably clear that the exclusive point of entry into the community of faith, into the assembly of the beloved. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be the church? According to Paul, according to the gospel, according to the word of God, the exclusive point of entry is by grace through faith in the work of Christ alone, plus nothing. Work of Christ alone, by grace, salvation is by grace through faith, not plus your works. Works are evidence. They are not the root. They are not the foundation. They are not the means of your salvation. They evidence what has already happened. So this was the issue. And Paul makes it unavoidably clear that Christ alone and his work is responsible for the fundamental change that calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that calls us to resurrection from the death of our sin. One commentator aptly observes of the book of Galatians that, quote, everything in this letter is related to Paul's defense of justification by faith alone. Everything in the book of Galatians, his claim is, I think he's correct, is related to Paul's defense of justification by faith alone. That is, that is you are justified, you are rendered righteous in the sight of a holy God by faith in Christ's work alone, none of your righteousness counts to that end. It is all but filthy rags. The book of Galatians shouts in our ears the wake-up call of gospel priority and purity even today. Brothers and sisters, if you don't think the book of Galatians is relevant today, then you're not aware of the umpteen deceptions that popularly and 
prevalently uh, steal the attention of so many professing Christians, even in our hour. The professing church has certainly not outgrown the usefulness of Paul's admonishments. Today, notions of salvation enhanced by our works or uh, in purchase in part, yes, by God's grace, but not sufficiently by God's grace, you might hear in communions uh, like the Roman Catholic tradition, they add, uh, they uh, basically stand upon this notion that grace is necessary but not sufficient. In the face of this claim, Paul says, no, he will have none of it. The hill to die on is that justification is by faith alone. Man is always tempted today as it was in Galatia to steal some glory for ourselves and justifying that glory theft by twisting the scriptures uh, to uh, fit our notions the way that we would prefer these ideas, this tendency is still rampant. So Galatians is a book for us. May we be equipped with the weapons of our warfare to expose and again to equip the church to discern and to reject different gospels. With that introduction, let us look at three hills to die on, if you will, or better said, Paul's three assertions that he opens his book with as he greets the churches in Galatia. So a heading could be this. Paul greets the churches of Galatia asserting the following. Number one, true apostolic agency. So the office of apostle. Paul asserts that he is an apostle and he asserts the true office of true apostles, so apostolic agency. The second assertion, true gospel proclamation. The first point is verses 1 and 2. True gospel proclamation, the second point is verses 3 through 5. And then verses 6 through 9, Paul is very militant. Perhaps we could label those verses no quarter for the contrary. In other words, there is no space made, no accommodation made no uh, compromise, no communion or no uh, unity at all with the idea of the contrary. Uh, under these three major points, we find three questions answered, who, what, and how. First of all, who is writing and instructing? What authority does he retain? Namely, Paul. Secondly, what is his message? What is the gospel? And thirdly, how is the truth distinct from the lie and from uh, these uh, the message of the false teachers. So let's look at this more closely. First of all, Paul greets the churches of Galatia asserting true apostolic agency. Who is writing? Who is instruct instructing them? Notice again verses 1 and 2. He introduces this letter by saying, Paul, comma, an apostle. So who is writing? An apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul. Now he goes on to describe his agency as an apostle. He qualifies it with the following, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Now, to Paul's point, you could get the entire world, you could get the, a, a, an entire council, an ecumenical council gathered together to affirm that so-and-so was an apostle. But would that be sufficient grounds to grant them the authority to speak on behalf of Christ? According to Paul, no. Apostolic agency is not from man, uh, from men, nor is it through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. What official capacity did Paul retain to speak with this kind of authority? We will see this more in the book as it unfolds, but there are narrow, specific, 
qualifications that must be met in order for Paul to speak as an apostle. We know that he must have seen the res- resurrected Jesus Christ, and we will find in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8 later, 9, 9 later, that that in fact was the case. Paul also, uh, well, let's just read here. Uh, not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The office, the official capacity of apostle is one that is qualified by Christ himself appointing personally agents to bring forth with authority his word for his new covenant era. And saints and members of the household of God, it's important to notice to note with the testimony of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, there are only 12 of them. There are only 12 of them. Revelation chapter 21 proves as much in symbolic form. Revelation 21, 12. It's a description of the new Jerusalem that we have unfolding before us. And among these pictures, we have the following. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So here we have the population, if you will, represented, the citizens of the new Jerusalem. The picture of the people of God as the 12 tribes in its, full, in its fulfillment, all the people of God spiritually identified by union with Christ are welcome on these gates. If you know Jesus Christ, One day, so to speak, you will stand before one of those gates and your name will be inscribed upon it. More than this, your name is inscribed on Christ's vestments as your high priest as well. These are pictures that describe the terms and conditions of salvation and what we have to look forward to in Christ. There's more than this as we continue to read verse 13. On the east, three gates. The north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So here we have reference to the foundational truth upon which the Christian church, the church, the true communion of Jesus Christ, the saints and members of the household of God for all time are built upon, and they are built upon the apostles who were personally appointed by Jesus Christ were delegated the authority to uh, recount, to uh, record, and to interpret His Word. To record, to interpret, and to apply His Word. That was the job of the apostle. Paul was one of them. Now, there were fake apostles running around. They were claiming an authority. They said things like, listen to me and my powerful persuasive skills. I have oratory abilities beyond any other. That ought to convince you that what I have to say is worth listening to. They were advertising their self on their skill level, their charisma, their popularity. This message is being cheered by by crowds all over the Greco-Roman Empire. You should come and listen. Notice that these authorities are rooted in things, in uh, ideas, conditions that are from men and through men, not through Jesus Christ. God might appoint as his prophet in the Old Testament an agent who in God's sovereignty will have zero people listen to his message. That does not diminish his authority even one iota. Isaiah and Jeremiah are testimony to this. Why? Because their authority was rooted in 
the direct and personal revelation and calling of God. And as I say, in New Testament times, there are but 12. They are, make the foundations. They, in their ministry, comprise the foundations for the church for all time. Now, there are times in Scripture the word apostle has broader application. There is a particular sense which we are describing today. There's also a general sense. So apostle can be something like a synonym for disciple as well, and the context will teach you how to differentiate between the two. Suffice it to say, for the purposes of this message today, Paul was identifying the official capacity of those who speak on behalf of God in the New Testament, who were commissioned to record again, to record, to interpret, and to apply His Word. And their words, when recorded such as we have them today, became canon, became Scripture. The words of the Galatian teachers, no such thing. Their official capacity was null and void because their appeal to authority was popularity, preference, culture, of people listening to them, whatever, persuasive, ability, charisma. It was rooted in something else. They were false teachers. This is very important to recognize. This week I heard a popular or a Methodist pastor of an apostate church, a megachurch as it was described, speaking to Paul taking license to change the, no, the, the church's understanding of the role of circumcision for that time and era, and then equivocating, saying, therefore, we could uh, see, conceive in our day and age that we can kind of adapt the scriptures to accommodate changing cultural whims as well. And of course, the application of his point was homosexual relationships. It is time for the church to do what Paul did, he said, basically. And consider a wider understanding of what the scriptures say as to what is sexually or what is permissible in the sexual ethics of New Testament Christianity. What was what error was he making in 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 uh, this claim? He was putting himself in the place of official capacity of an apostle. Did this man have the right or power to take uh, li the liberty that Paul did, speaking as uh, agent? of God's Word, uh, delegated and appointed to show the fulfillment of the law of circumcision in the circumcision of the heart in the new covenant? Absolutely not. This man was uh, proud and arrogant and making claim to an official capacity that he had no right to claim. How do we know that any preacher is speaking in official capacity to whatever degree um, he is delegated today? Well, we know it in that he is rightly dividing the word of God. Every preacher is accountable to what Paul has declared and the rest of the authors of Scripture. No preacher has the liberty to adjust, to alter, to add, to subtract, to modify, to accommodate changing whims of culture as if he were an apostle. There is a chain of agency that describes the official capacity and notice the a chain of authority as we read. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. What is Paul describing here? He's talking about a chain, if you will, a flowchart of authority. At the top of this flowchart, the very absolute authoritative position is God the Father. God the Father planned and ordained to send his Son and he did. His son came as the word. The son is the mediator between 
the uh, truth of God and the ears that have been enlightened, that have been opened by the Holy Spirit of man. Thus, he is the word of God. He is the agent, the Son, Jesus Christ, incarnate in the flesh. He is the agent revealing the truth of God to men. And he speaks the word of God. And so close is the relationship between the word of Christ and God himself that he says, if you know me, you know the Father. And then after, and God demonstrated this, he certified the authority of Christ to speak at, uh, for God in his incarnation, to speak as God, I should better said, in his incarnation, in his resurrection. There's an affirmation of the authority of Christ, the word made flesh in that he was raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit in this act, thus sealing and assuring, confirming, certifying his work and ministry. And then finally, all those who follow him, the brothers who are with me, they affirm in uh, trying to, uh, to the best of their ability, understand and discern to take the word of God and affirm and appoint accordingly. So if Paul's authority did not come from or through man, uh, where did it come from? The chain of authoritative appointment went like this. God the Father appoints Jesus Christ, whose uh, commissioning as our Lord and Savior was manifestly evident upon his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ personally appoints Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. And then the brothers with Paul, the brothers with Paul then send and affirm him. This is the way that the apostolic agency was ordered according to the scriptures. Why is this important? Because anyone who fell outside of those qualifications should not be listened to. That's why. And there was plenty of false teachers who were claiming certain things that were against the word of Christ, often in subtle ways, and Paul was training them to identify what is the chain of agency, what is legitimate spiritual authority so that they could have discernment to recognize and reject false teachers. Now let's turn in Acts chapter 9 to the documentation of Paul's calling as an apostle. These events, the credentials of Paul as an apostle are documented. Uh, this event is attended by witnesses, by the supernatural, by miracles, and by the attestation of the brothers. It is powerful indeed. In Acts chapter 9, let's pick up on the story of Paul's conversion, shall we? Verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, so that would be what they identified Christians as at the time, capital letters, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, Paul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now the Lord appointed a disciple, we read of him in verse 10. 
In Damascus, his name was Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, and behold, he is praying. Ananias goes. The Lord says to him, for go, as Ananias is scared, knowing that Saul has breathed threats against the people of God. He was a one-time persecutor of the church. Nevertheless, the Lord tells him in verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departs, enters the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. From that moment on, he goes out and proclaims. The Lord calls him aside for more instruction for time in his life, but not before he begins to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God immediately testifying to this anointing, this granting of him official capacity to speak as an apostolic voice to the first century church that Christ has risen, that his word is true. And so Paul's conversion is the testimony to this calling, to this appointment, and the circumstances surrounding it confirm as much. Notice that Paul's conversion is set in the context of a clash of rival authorities. You see, there were the high priests that had given him agency to do something as well in verse 1. So Paul had gone to the high priest and asked him for permission, letters to, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to, quote, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so, of course, they granted his request, and by their uh, authority, which was illegitimate, they gave him this warrant, basically, for the arrest of any believer confessing follower of Jesus Christ that he might persecute and imprison them. And then there's a clash of authorities where Jesus Christ takes issue with this, interrupts him halfway through his mission, strikes him blind, changes his heart, converts his soul, appoints a man to bring his word to him, calls him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and sets his entire life on a 180-degree trajectory away persecuting the church according to the false authority of other religious leaders and becoming a foundation, a pillar, one of the 12, if you will, foundation stones of the church of Jesus Christ. Incredible indeed. So even in the account of the calling and conversion of Saul, we see testimony to the authoritative grounds of God's word and his agents, his agency, the official capacity, the chain of agency, and the documentation of the same. All these are in place in order to listen and hear the word and judge that what you're hearing is indeed the word of God. Paul greets the churches of Galatia asserting true apostolic agency. Second major point. Paul greets the churches of Galatia asserting true gospel proclamation. So we've considered who is writing, who is instructing them, what authority does he have. Now let's consider what is the message that Paul brought. What is the true gospel? It's summarized in verses 3 through 5. He says in verse 2, to the churches of Galatia, then a colon, and now listen to the gospel proclaimed, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. These are the hills to die on, saints. Grace and peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, nowhere else. No other source of reconciliation with the Father. No other hope for salvation. And this comes from Christ who, verse 4, gave himself for our sins, a hill to die on. The atoning death of Christ is non-negotiable. Penal substitutionary atonement. Punishment born by another. Atonement, satisfaction of the wrath of God that our sins deserved, non-negotiable, hill to die on. To deliver us from the present age, the sinfulness of our condition, born in sin, present evil age, representing the blood poisoning that comes from Adam, our father, who committed sin, thus ushering all of his progeny into the slavery of sin until such time as God sovereignly intervened and called them out of darkness into light. In order for us to be delivered from this present evil age, Christ must die according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Gospel proclamation. What is the message? First of all, grace alone. Grace alone and peace with God. Notice, this is a common greeting that Paul gives the churches. You see this at the beginning of many of his letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps never more appropriate is this greeting than to the church of Galatia during this time. Why? Because they were trusting in something in addition to grace to give them peace with God. Perhaps we need to be circumcised or fulfill some you know, conditions of the law in order to have peace with God as well. And no, the answer from Paul is grace uh, in implied alone to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives the basis, the ground, the merit Uh, the assurance, the source of assurance for that peace. Now, that peace with God is the peace of reconciliation. It's where two parties who are once at odds, bitter rivals to the death, have now forged between them a covenant, a covenant where arms are laid down and there is an embrace of mutual understanding. A treaty has been reached, a peace treaty, where the parties no longer see themselves at odds no longer see themselves as adversaries, but as friends. More than this, in the case of the new covenant, as family. God, our Father, we, His children, these are the terms that peace by the grace of Christ's work alone, by grace alone, paid for by Christ's work alone, affords us. The message here is that by grace, by the grace of Jesus available through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, you have reconciliation, restoration of relationship, peace with God, assurance of salvation, the washing away of guilt for sin. That is the only way, grace alone. Secondly, under true gospel proclamation, we see again a recapitulation or the pattern of this chain of agency. The blessing of salvation is received by the church following this similar chain of agency that Paul had described with respect to his apostleship. What do, we, what do we see here then? Paul is training them to recognize the appointed means of divine activity in the lives of his people and thereby to discern and reject 
any claims to authority and salvation which do not measure up to the biblical pattern and precedent. Notice verse 4, or 3 again. After stating grace to you in the salutation and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what is this chain of agency? First of all, there is the will of God the Father. Secondly, there is obedience of Christ, His Son, giving Himself for our sins. Thirdly, there is the deliverance in His blood from this present evil age. And finally, on this ground, there is the assurance of grace and peace, which transforms our relationship with the Lord and transforms our relationships with each other. This is the incubator of the church of Jesus Christ. This is the chain reaction in the new birth, if you will. We just recently had a son, Sebastian Van Til. Maybe you've met him. He's down front here. You can meet him later if you haven't yet. So Sebastian is like coming up on, what is he, five weeks on? So five weeks old. But if you go back down the chain of events in the creation of new birth, you see necessary conditions that must fall in order. So it is with the new birth. God decrees in his sovereignty. He makes a plan. He has purpose and predestined a people for himself. He has decreed before the ages passed, before time began to send his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Secondly, within the Trinity, within the communion of the Godhead, there is an agreement, a covenant, if you will. There is an obedience of Christ the Son in what we call the economic trinity to take on the duty, the role, and the action of our salvation. And so he comes, leaving aside his pre-incarnate glory, born in time, a helpless and humble babe as we see him in the major. Why? It was necessary to fulfill the conditions, as he told John the Baptist, of all righteousness. He grows to be a man. His uh, ministry is initiated. We read last week, Matthew chapter 3. We see the Spirit descend upon him. Immediately he goes into his probationary period as the second Adam is tested in the wilderness and he passes the test with flying colors, thus securing the righteousness that would be imputed, transferred to our account. And upon his finished work on Calvary, his death in our place, and then the certifiable glory of him as the Son and the sufficient high priest who by his resurrection life is better than all the high priests who went before according to the new order, according to the order of Melchizedek himself, him after giving himself for our sins, then when he is trusted and believed upon and his work alone, there is grace and peace to ransom for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from the far corners of the earth and on into history as the church age continues to unfold. This is the chain of events that we can trace back and know that we are saved because God had a plan, because he gave his son who in the fullness of time paid the penalty for our sin. We trust and believe in him and we have been brought from darkness into light. Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, that is to say, has awakened our hearts, the reality of this truth. And when we confess and believe, we are now, by the grace of Jesus Christ, at peace with the Lord, and part of the fellowship of all who share that experience, the church of Jesus Christ. These are hills to die on, saints. These are the essentials. Atonement, salvation, 
decree and glory. Heels to die on. Any capitulation, alteration, modification, customization of these truths and essentials and foundation stones of the gospel, Paul will have none of it. He will call anyone who denies these things accursed, anathema, an unbeliever, worse than that, a demonic influence on the church, one that will be condemned, has nothing but perdition, hellfire to look forward to. If he does not repent of negotiating the essentials, who gave himself for our sins, atonement, to deliver us from this present age salvation, according to the will of God and uh, of our God and Father, decree to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory. Atonement, salvation, decree, and glory among the essentials, the non-negotiables of the gospel proclamation. So we have seen who is writing. By what authority does he bring these things? We have seen what is his message. And finally, let us note uh, with sobering eyes uh, and let it bring an awareness to us of the consequences that are at stake that there is no quarter for the contrary. Paul greets the churches of Galatia asserting not just apostolic agency, his, in fact, their true gospel proclamation, but also asserting that there is no quarter, there is no accommodation, there's no friendship to be had, there's no toleration for the contrary message to justification by faith alone. How is the truth distinct? Well, notice in verse 6, Paul says the following, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel Contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. How do counterfeits arise in the church of Jesus Christ? Let me give you one example. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Two weeks ago, we, ex we explored in some depth the genuine conversion of the Ethiopian. This foreigner, God-fearer, who had been in Jerusalem to worship, encountering the gospel in the Holy Scriptures, then through a gospel preacher, was brought to an awareness of the truth of his uh, sin and the way of salvation as Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, confesses his sin, is saved, and immediately is baptized as water is provided in this desert place. Awesome. A picture of genuine conversion. But in the course of the book of Acts, the narrative of the early church Events unfolding that teach us to identify certain patterns and expectations for the gospel going forth in a culture. We also see examples that are not so glowing. And here's an example of one would-be counterfeit convert, if you will, that immediately precedes the Ethiopian. This is Simon. In verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
You see the situation, the context of this account being set up? You have the previous star of the show, if you will, the one that commanded the attention and the following of the peoples. This illusionist, magician, uh, demonic practitioner, whatever he was, Simon, doing amazing spectacles for the people of people following him. But now there's a new game in town. The gospel has reached their ears. Conviction of sin has come. And now Simon is old news. Verse 12 continues, uh, 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Ask yourself this question. Do we see signs in this account that Simon was attracted to the right thing and thus confessed the true gospel as his hope for salvation? Or do we see signs of something else? Note the Ethiopian. His attention was arrested in the chariot by the prophet Isaiah, the word of God and the gospel preacher who pointed to the truth of this prophecy and said, Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant. But this man saw the impressive appeal of these apostles in his town. He also witnessed spectacular miracles, yes, evidencing the power of God. But it seems to me that he really wanted a piece of that kind of amazing, of, of amazing ability, power, influence, perhaps. In verse 18, we continue to see evidence to this effect. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing, kids? Why? Yeah, because, that's right, Do it, can money earn you salvation? Can money earn you favor with God? No. What is the only thing that can get you favor with God? The blood of that's right. There's a problem here in Simon's thinking. He tries to offer money in exchange for favor or power with God. Verse 19, he said, saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, this is a pronouncement of a curse. The apostle, in this case, is doing the same as Paul, pronouncing a curse on the counterfeit, the false convert, the false teacher. In the book of Galatians, may your uh, works righteousness, may your adherence to the law perish with you, because you thought that by being circumcised, you could have favor with God. Same concept at play, verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore. Here's the gospel appeal. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So here we have some examples in the book of Acts, as well as apostolic instruction. And the expectation is this, in the course of the history of the church, there will be false converts, impressive figures, charismatic personalities, but they, over the course of time, will betray themselves by their fruit. In the case of Simon, they will show that he thought he could come to a little agreement with God and pay some money and then earn some favor, gain some power. And so his idea of the gospel, his 
message of the gospel, not that there is another one, hinged upon worldly things, sinful things, idolatry, and desirous, desiring to be prominent and influential and spectacular. And that was his downfall. In the case of the false teachers of Galatia, they were believing that they must add to the work of Christ some works of righteousness in order for them to secure salvation. And these teachers, no doubt, enjoyed their influence and the popularity of their teaching and the prominence that they enjoyed now with this new message that they were proclaiming. These were counterfeits. The New Testament teaches us to identify them. Are there counterfeits today? You better believe it. You better believe that there are counterfeits to the non-negotiable, once-for-all faith delivered to the saints that actually sound very impressive and are attractive for multiple reasons. Perhaps because people are drawn to spectacular displays of power, yes. But perhaps they are uh, attracted to the idea of making some concessions and finding more agreement with a culture that hates, despises, and rejects, and maligns, and impugns Christians so much. Those can be attractive things. Those can be powerful motivators for us to create or to make quarter with the contrary, to tolerate capitulation on the essentials of the faith. Now, capitulation in this regard is attended by signs and fruit. How did this listening to these false apostles, these false teachers in Galatia, affect the church? Paul says as much in verse 7, he says, not that there is another one speaking of the gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So there is a distortion of the gospel and it produces trouble in the church, a distortion and trouble. The term distort could well be uh, identified with a twisting, an altering, a reshaping, a customizing of Scripture to fit your preferences. In this way, they were distorting the clear, unambiguous message of salvation in Christ alone, faith alone, uh, the faith al- or by grace through faith alone message that Paul delivered. He had had said, of course, in verse 4, of Christ, that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. But this message was distorted by the false teachers. And then it produced, and as a consequence, it produced trouble in the church, confusion, disagreements, um, arguments, um, a a state of, of... a, d- a distraction, and also um, a, d- a lack of discernment, a gullibility, and the church was in an extremely weakened state as a result of these words. There was strife, uncertainty, an ungroundedness, a sort of confusion, a twisting, a convolution of the truth, contradicting the true and clear teaching of Scripture. And so we see effects of this around us today. I've referenced a few examples already, but especially in the area of sexual ethics today or identity politics, these things that are elevated to the point of superior virtues in our culture. When the church tries to accommodate this new definition of justice, these new terms that the world proclaims as righteousness, this new law that men invents or what is the way that we should walk in, When the church tries to accommodate these things, what happens is they distort the true message of the gospel and they trouble the church. There was a conference recently that in podcast world kind of came across my feed multiple times called the Revoice Conference. And basically, 
I can't remember exactly the mission and vision of this conference, but it was something along the lines to I have uh, create a new voice and sensitivity to uh, sexual minorities and um, create a safe space for LGBT brothers and sisters. And of course, they try to qualify this by saying they were obligated not to follow up on those desires in the actions that they, they took, but nevertheless, this orientation as something that can be neutral and natural and ought to be accommodated within the church. What does this sound like? This sounds exactly what Paul warned of in, in Galatians. This is an example of distortion that will breed trouble in the church. And if left unchecked, if this kind of dece deception is allowed to flourish and take root, it will produce whole scale, as far as it's believed, apostasy among the church of Jesus Christ. Mark my words. And take my words to Scripture and see if this is not the case with the rest of the apostolic teaching. After all, what I say to you bears no authority unless it lines up with what Paul and others in the Scriptures have already said. And in closing this morning, there are consequences. Consequences for uh, promoting to any degree a message that is contrary to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, even angels, not to mention apostles, are not judgment and condemnation if they so distort the gospel as to change its effective terms. If one says that grace is necessary but not sufficient, Paul says, I don't care if they're an angel from heaven glowing with otherworldly light. I don't care if they rise above you with the, at the colossal height of a skyscraper, if they glow with all the radiance of another celestial realm, if they have in their hand a scepter and a halo on their head, I don't care what kind of agent it is, but if they fall short of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are a curse, they are anathema, they might as well be a demon because they will one day join all of the agents of hell in the lake of fire. They're doing the devil's work, the devil's bidding. They are apostles of Satan. They're not apostles of Jesus Christ. These are hills to die on. doesn't matter how impressive the voice, the persona, the personality, the uh, message, the, the twisting and the convoluted appeal, the uh, supposed logic behind it. It doesn't matter if it's an angel itself from heaven. If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one verified by Holy Scripture, let him be accursed, Paul says. The consequences are dire. Now, there are many examples of damnable heresies that fall into this category, and we will go through a few of them by way of example and application in the course of our Galatian message. But start thinking along those lines, if you would. Think of anything that you have heard that claims to be a voice for Christ in Christianity and His Word that says, grace is necessary, but not sufficient. And when you have identified anything that falls into that category, recognize that is the voice of Satan himself. No matter how authoritative and powerful and persuasive, he might want to masquerade. And this is the lesson that Galatians 1 gives us. Paul closes his message in verses 1 through 9 by repeating this indictment for good measure. Now, we might ask ourselves, shaken awake by the reality of the consequences and how significant the gospel is, how do we know if we fall in line with the verifiably orthodox line of apostolic biblical authority? How do we know that we hold 
to the true gospel. Well, there is no way of knowing outside of the Spirit's use of His Holy Word. The Word of God is our standard. And so this message ought to drive us back to more reverence, fear, more patient study, dedication to the Word of God. Hold your pastor accountable to that standard. Hold yourself in your study and in your conclusions and in your theories and in your ideas accountable to that standard. And as we do so, we will be applying rightly, may I submit, Galatians 1, 1 through 9. This morning at the Lord's table, we are also reminded that we don't only have the Scriptures in written form, but we have, as it were, the Scriptures in dramatized form before us today. At the Lord's table, we are reminded of hills to die on, because there was a hill, if you will, that Christ Himself died upon. The hill was Calvary. And Christ's death was absolutely necessary for our salvation. And upon the hill of Calvary, His body was broken and His blood was shed for the remission of our sins. This morning at the Lord's table, these are the things that we recall. Recall that your eternal life hinges upon the event that is symbolized, that is commemorated in this meal today your eternal life. And nothing short of the body and blood of Jesus Christ carries any ultimate hope for the future of mankind. And as you partake of these elements, if you are a believer in the room today, be reassured as sure as you taste the bread and as sure as that cup is tasted on your palate, so sure is your salvation. If you trust in Christ alone, a powerful reassurance for us. We might ask ourselves, where is the mooring post? How can we stand in a day that seems so dangerous with false teaching and winds of doctrine and popular, notion, popular um, you know, movements of unbelief? Well, we have a couple of answers before us this morning. Communion table and what it represents. Continue to come to the communion table and remember the significance that it proclaims to your heart. And go back, of course, as we've already said, to the Scriptures and read them again, and understand when you are reading them, you are reading the very Word of God. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Jesus, we are so thankful that you give us sufficient grace, not only for our salvation, but to stand when our faith is threatened. I pray today as we partake at your table that you would remind us of the price that you paid, Lord. That is a hill to die on, indeed the hill that you died on, Lord, so that we may not forget, as long as we live, the absolute and perfect fulfillment of all the conditions for our salvation, union with Christ, peace with you, restoration of relationship, relationship, hope eternal in Christ our Lord. Awaken our hearts to this reality as we partake at your table. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of sin, grow us in sanctification, and equip us to proclaim your holy word as a result of this service today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.